Uh, this is lesson eight of a, uh, a ten-week series. So after today, so after today, we'll have two more. Just to, you're keeping track, um, and we're actually going to we're actually going to have uh, only one more lesson in Mark. I'll finish Mark up uh, next week, and then I'll have a special number ten. Will be a special Thanksgiving message, Thanksgiving Day message, which I think you'll really enjoy. Um, all the other classes have, so you're obligated <laughs> to enjoy it. All right, so we'll be, I'm also skipping a couple of chapters today. Uh, I actually sent you an uh, email with chapter 10, The Rich Young Ruler, for you to read uh, so that I wouldn't have to cover it today. Uh, and we're going to do the uh, start off with the Passion Week, which begins, of course, with Palm Sunday in Mark chapter 11. And one of the things Jesus is, has gotten uh, in on almost every single lesson is the idolatry of the Jewish religious leaders. They've actually taken the law and made it their idol instead of the God who created the idol, and so idolatry, just like uh, in today's movie clip, Kramer makes butter his idol. All right, Mark chapter 11. If you remember last week, we saw that uh, Jesus, when he was at the farthest northern part of Israel, and we'll look at some maps here, uh, which was at Caesarea Philippi, and, and it's still the farthest northern part of Israel today, even. Um, I think we got some maps. Yeah, you can see that was it, the one that disappeared. Uh, right up at the top up there, Caesarea Philippi. And, and Jesus, was, that was about a, a year before the next Passover. It was right after the Passover. The year. And so he begins to teach them differently. Now he used to be teaching about the kingdom of God, but he's going to begin teaching uh, beginning last week uh, about the crucifixion. I've got to go back to Jerusalem and I'll be arrested and crucified. And, of course, that's when Paul, uh, Peter said, no, we'll never let that happen. And he said, get behind me, Satan, if you remember. So the uh, chapter uh, 10 is about that year-long movement from Caesarea Philippi all the way back down to Jerusalem. And he goes all over the place, really. He, uh, it was a nine, ten-month journey all the way back. He zigzagged around the Galilee uh, Samaria, he went through there, Perea and Judea, and so he really covered a lot of ground, went to a lot of places, and the primary uh, uh, theologians estimate about 35 different locations based on all the different stories in all four Gospels. And he's going to end up in Jerusalem at the Passover, um, and if you remember the Passover had to do with the moon because if you've ever noticed, our Easter moves around, right? And it's because they, it's based on the Jewish calendar when they determine Passover, it has to do with their lunar or their moon calendar, whereas we use one that's based on the sun. So that's why it, uh, Easter moves around. So, you didn't need to know that, but I just I couldn't help it. Um, and so he ends up in today's lesson in chapter 11, back at... Jerusalem, and when he comes to Jerusalem, typically he stays, there you go, he stays at Bethany, 
And you can see Bethany and Bethpage are both in today's lesson. Bethany is where Martha and Lazarus and Mary uh, live, and he usually stays at their house whenever he comes to Jerusalem, and then it's about a two-mile walk into Jerusalem. Because especially at the Passover, there was nowhere to stay because mil literally millions of people would come for Passover to Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean world. And uh, one of the reasons, of course, is that the Mosaic Law said that all Jews had to come to Jerusalem for Passover. Uh, they had to celebrate it by offering up a lamb sacrifice that was part of the Passover, the innocent blood, you know, that goes all the way back to the Exodus account uh, when they put the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death passed by and Moses said, from now on you'll do this as a memorial and every family will sacrifice a lamb. So they all had to go back to Jerusalem. So there was Jews all over the Mediterranean world at this point, uh, first century. Uh, they were in Rome, they were all over Greece and, and up and down the coast in every direction and they all journeyed back to Jerusalem theoretically. But the um, population would swell so much that there was no place to stay. So Jesus would stay with his friends, there, Martha and, and Mary and Lazarus and Bethany, and then he'd walk into Jerusalem. Uh, and so here we are uh, on Palm Sunday, and Jesus is going to, in the morning, walk from Bethany into Jerusalem. He's going to come from the east. And what's east of Jerusalem? But you guessed it the Mount of Olives. So you can see up here uh, the Mount of Olives. You can see it also on this map. Uh, there's, there's another map of the Mount of Olives. And you can see in red uh, outline the old city of Jerusalem. So Jesus would, would come up, climb Mount of Olives, and then come down the Mount of Olives. There's a road that goes uh, directly into the uh, temple. And uh, there's been a lot of conversation whether there was an eastern gate or they came around to the southern gate. doesn't really matter. I think the uh, traditional gate was the southern gate, so he probably came in the, the southern gate of the temple and went up there, and during the Passion Week, he would go in the temple area and teach every day. And keep in mind, notice how big it's, it says temple. Obviously, uh, one building, which is the size of the temple, it's just a small part of that temple area. That's why they call it the Temple Mount because Herod the Great took Mount Moriah and carved off the, uh, the northern part, which is the high part, and then built up with arches the southern part and then paved over the top of the mountain so it was completely flat. So the Temple Mount now during the time of Jesus because of Herod the Great the one who was there and tried to kill Jesus, you know, when he was two years old. He had built this incredible temple mount and remodeled the temple, and it was just an incredible tourist attraction. It was an amazing place, huge. It's about six football fields long and about three football fields wide. That's big, right? Uh, and try to get your arms around this. Uh, with so many people there, uh, during Passover, and they were all to go up on the Temple Mount, and you had to buy a uh, lamb, or if you were poor, you, you could buy a pigeon. But uh, Moses' law had said, yeah, you can see that they're, they're walking up there. There's the Temple Mount. You see how massive it is. 
Uh, Moses' law said each family had to sacrifice an unblemished lamb. And so what the priests were doing is basically saying, you know, you, we can't trust you that for yours to be unblemished, uh, so we are going to have our own herds of unblemished lambs. So basically you had to buy from the priests. They had a monopoly. So it's a pretty good deal for them. They also said since this is God's holy temple, uh, you can't use Gentile money up here. So they were uh, providing the service of changing the month, Gentile money into temple money. And so a lot of you have tables of uh, money changers everywhere. You've got big pens of lambs and doves and all these different animals that they were selling up there. It was really a wild scene, and it would just been packed with people. Try to imagine the state fair on Texas OU weekend. I'm serious. That's what it was like. Because, you know, you go out there, and it's just packed with people and all the noise and everybody carrying on. There's vendors everywhere. That's the way it was there. There was vendors everywhere selling everything that you can think of. And there was guides and, and uh, all kinds of booths and sell. And you know how when you got to the state fair, they got all those animals and you could kind of smell them, you know, the minute you go into the fair? That's the way this was because they had thousands, literally thousands of animals up there selling them, right? And so it was really a wild scene. And Jesus had uh, been going to uh, Jerusalem his whole life. And so my question to you that we'll, we'll get into is, all the other times Jesus came to Jerusalem, there was no crowds to, get, to greet him. Usually he just slipped in quietly and, and he was there. There was never a giant parade outside on the other times Jesus came to Jerusalem. So you, what you should be asking yourself is, why this time? How did that happen? Well, we're going to find out today. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> okay, so uh, when Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives to come into Jerusalem for the Passover, he's greeted by this huge crowd. And uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12, if we could have that, Larry, uh, tells us why the crowds were there. This is why Jesus, you know, you, you look at John chapter 11, and it's the raising of Lazarus and this incredible miracle that was done in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, right? Maybe a week or two before. And because that was such a totally awesome miracle, look, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about Jesus and what he had done. And for this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So you can imagine everybody in the city talking. Uh, he was the big news. Can you believe what that guy who claims to be the Messiah did over in Bethany? He raised the guy who was four days dead. And I guarantee you this happened because I went, you know, I was a friend of the family. And we went there, and the guy was dead and in the tomb for four days, and Jesus raised him from the dead. Who could do that but God himself? This must be the Messiah. And so that's what everybody in Jerusalem was talking about, John says. And for that reason, they expected him to come to Passover, and they were out there waiting for him. This is the long-awaited Messiah. 
that we've been waiting all our life for. In the Jewish mindset in the first century, they had been under Gentile domination for 700 years. And all the teachers, all the religious leaders have been saying, when the Messiah comes, he's going to deliver the Jews from all the tyranny of the Gentiles and set up the kingdom and bring back all the glory to Israel. And so they viewed the Messiah through their own lens, you might say. And they saw because of their circumstances, what they really wanted was a political military leader. They wanted Jesus to deliver them from the Roman domination, the Roman tyranny, the Roman taxes, etc. And set up another glorious kingdom like Solomon and David had that they read about, right? So they're looking for the Messiah for all the wrong reasons. Jesus came, why? Because he was a suffering servant who was going to die on the cross as a substitution for our sins. So he didn't come to be a political military leader in his first coming. When he comes back, that's when he will conquer. That's when he comes back as the conquering king and when he will set up the kingdom of God when he comes back. Uh, but the first coming, he had to die on the cross to atone for sins. They want him to set up the kingdom. What good would it do to set up a kingdom full of sinners? Can't do it. You've got to save them first. They've got to be made righteous first. And so that's why he came. And you're going to see uh, that contrast between the crowd on Sunday when he comes. They're all singing his praises. This is the guy. He's the one. Save us, Jesus. And then suddenly, that's Sunday, then Friday, what happens? They bring him up uh, on the palace steps where Pontius Pilate is. He's in chains, and they've beaten him to pieces. He's just a bloody mess. And he's standing up there in chains, and they say, Behold, what do you want me to do with this guy? And the priests, of course, are telling him, this guy lied to you. He's not the Messiah. Can you see this? He's a criminal. And so the people completely swing over to crucify him. The same crowd. You know? You might have seen, you know, or you might have heard sermons or something where people say, well, it was a totally different crowd because it was five days later, and uh, the first crowd was somewhere else, and the second, baloney. No, they had a completely different perspective about him, and they were totally disappointed in him. They wanted that political military Messiah, and he came as the suffering servant. Who wants that guy? How's he going to deliver us? How's he going to help me? How's he going to cut my taxes, you know, and raise, you know, my wages and cut unemployment? How's he going to do all these things that we want, right? Uh, and so that's the contrast that you're looking at during this Passion Week. And at the same time, you've got the religious leaders who are trying to bring him down. He's a threat to their power and their prestige and their money. And they're trying to do away with him. They've plotted how to kill him. And uh, here he comes and the people are welcoming, welcoming, welcoming him. Excuse me. All right. 
So the Jewish religious leaders are, are you know, saying, we've got to stop this guy. What's he going to do? Is he going to try to be a king? Uh, is he going to start an insurrection against Rome and ruin everything that we've done, etc., etc.? And what you see, really, uh, and what I kind of was led to believe when I was a kid, maybe you also, was this all just kind of happened on the spur of the moment. It, you know, it just, just happened, right? Wrong. Uh, we can see that Jesus planned this far in advance. All the prophets spoke of it, and he's going to fulfill all this prophecy, just as they said. And Jesus purposely did the miracle of raising Lazarus so that this would occur, so, so that the uh, great parade there outside, east of the city on the Mount of Olives, would actually occur. It was all according to the sovereign plan of God. God knew what he was going to do and exactly when he was going to do it, and this is what we're looking at today, all right? So when you read it in chapter 11, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, so they were coming from there from the east side near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one yet has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? The Lord has need of it, you'll say, and they'll give it to you. So how does he know that there's going to be a cult like that there and that the people just willingly give it up? Again, the sovereign plan of God. He's got this all mapped out. This is all going according to plan. So he sends his disciples, they went away, found the colt, tied at the door, just as he said. And some bystanders said, what are you doing taking that colt? And they spoke to them as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. Okay, well then, fine, take it. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and he put their garments on it and sat upon the donkey. Now, when other great leaders came, other great military political leaders came, like they rode like Alexander the Great, I've read, he came into these cities that he conquered riding this great steed called Bucephalus. No one had ever seen a horse like Alexander had. Nebuchadnezzar, with his great army, he came in in chariots and Xerxes invaded Greece with a million-man army and came at the head of that. Caesar rode in a gold chariot. Napoleon rode in a great, on a great white charger. Our president flies in Air Force One. And limousines come in, all with great pomp and ceremony. But Jesus comes on a donkey. On purpose, the humility of it. Because that's who he is. He's the suffering servant who comes in humility to die on the cross. See, it's perfectly consistent with God's plan to send him into Jerusalem as to what he was going to do as opposed to what they thought, what they expected, what they wanted him to do, which was, you know, be a king and get rid of the Romans and all that. But Jesus had a different plan, and everything he does is according to that and fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. So verse 9, And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out. So the crowd was crying out a song that comes from uh, David wrote Psalm 118 of what the crowd would say when the Messiah comes. Hosanna, which means save us now. 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so just as the prophet said, they sang the exact song that the prophet said they would in welcoming the Messiah into the city. And he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve since it was already very late. Now this is surprising because I've always thought that he just walked up on the temple mount and saw this and was, oh, he got angry and lost his temper and ran the money changers and threw all they say. No. He planned this whole thing. After this long parade and going through this crowd and everything, when they finally got to the temple, he didn't have any more time other than to just kind of map everything out and see where the money changers were and what they were doing because the next day he knew exactly what he was going to do, which is go up there and expose these people for the crooks that they were. He planned it. And again, the prophets predicted it. This is all according to the sovereign plan of God. So he goes up, looks at everything, One more thing I want to point out, as he's coming down and they're singing this song and singing his praises and welcoming him. I mean, uh, the uh, great historian Josephus said that the population of Jerusalem swelled by about 2 million people during the Passover, right? And so there was an incredible crowd I read all these different accounts of how many people might have been out there, how big this parade, this welcoming was. And the smallest number that I read was 150,000 people. So going all the way to the top of the Mount of Olives, all the way down the road that goes down the Mount of Olives, and then as the road goes uh, through the valley of Kidron there, and then up into the temple... You know, people lined there in great crowds. So this huge mob of people, you know, were welcoming Jesus and telling him how great he was and that he was the king and et cetera, et cetera. What was Jesus doing? What was Jesus doing? Was he going along with this? Just the opposite. Luke 19 tells us what Jesus was thinking. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. About halfway down the Mount of Olives today, there's a church built there called uh, Olive. What's it called? Huh? I can't remember. Dominus Flevit. Thank you. Dominus Flevit. And of course, in Latin, Dominus is Lord, and Flevit is he wept. So this is where Jesus wept about halfway down the mountain at Dominus Flevit, and they they built a church there to commemorate that. So why is he weeping? Going back to the verse, you can see uh, going down, uh, that's the Mount of Olives that you go down. It's pretty steep. Uh, 19, Luke 19. Okay. So he saw the city and he wept. Why? He says, talking to the city and the people, the Jews, he's he's saying to himself and to his disciples, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, 
He's coming to make peace between God and man. If you'd have known this, but you didn't, you rejected Christ for who he really was. But now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. So what he's saying is, in 70 A.D., the Romans come and they surround the city and they lay siege to it and knock down the walls and completely destroy, level the whole city, including the Temple Mount and the temple which was on top of it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Because you rejected the Messiah, this is what's going to happen. So he wept over the city. It was a crusher for Jesus that they were going to reject him. And he knew what was going to happen because of their rejection. They will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation when the Messiah came. So the consequences. So he's coming down. He's weeping for the city and the city's celebrating him. What a great contrast, huh? But they, it just shows you they've got a completely different idea of who he is than he does. And they'll change it by the end of the week, right? They'll change hats completely. So now, the next morning, verse 12, next day, when they departed from Bethany, so they leave the house in Bethany, and uh, he says, oh, I'm hungry. Let's go over to this fig tree and have some figs. Look how beautiful this tree is. From a distance, it had a wonderful appearance, like a very healthy fig tree. That was the appearance. But when he got up close, what did he find out? It had no fruit. It had no fruit. Now, to understand what he's getting ready to do, you have to also realize that the last time he was in Jerusalem, between nine months and a year before this, he told a parable about a fig tree that did not bear fruit. And in that parable, the owner told the servant to chop it down. It doesn't bear fruit. What's the good is it doing here? Chop it down. And the, and the servant said, wait, wait. He said, let's water it. Let's give it another year. And if it doesn't bear fruit, then we'll chop it down. And the master said, fine. Now, here's Jesus back a year later, and he goes over to the fig tree. And I'm sure the, the uh, 12 disciples perfectly remembered this, like we would. But it came to them later when they wrote the Bible, right? And Jesus says, okay, there's the fig tree. Let's go over. Oh, it's got no fruit. And so he curses it. What's he doing? He's talking, he's likening the fig tree parable a year earlier was about Israel. I came to Israel and I found it had the appearance of religion. There was religion everywhere. They had temples and priests and everything, but there's no fruit. Everybody for themselves. They've come up with this institutional religion with the law as their idol. They rejected the God who is offering Messiah to them. They bear no fruit. So we'll give them one more year. He comes back at this year and 
They still reject him, and so he curses the tree. The tree equals, stands for Israel. And this parable is going to be right before he cleanses the temple. It's in the perfect place, context being there's no fruit, and these people have rejected the Messiah. So what does he do? He goes up on the temple mount, and he makes a big scene for everybody to see, and he exposes them for the crooks that they are. See? That's what's happening here. So you have the parable that he, he tells, and in verse 15, they came to, into the city, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods to the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, this is his point, is it not written, my house, God's house, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But what have you done? You've made it a robber's den. You've turned it into a crooked, money-making scheme. And by the way, on the fig tree deal, I like to read all these different theologians, and some of them, I won't even know what the real liberal ones say. And just, just a couple of these guys, this, this cracks me up. This one guy, I think he teaches up at Princeton or someplace. I'm not trying to be funny. This is the truth. His name's Klossner, and he says, Why curse an innocent fig tree? A gross injustice on an innocent tree. Unbelievable. Another guy named Manson said, Jesus used his miraculous power wasted by his bad temper. Unbelievable. And they just don't get it. You know, they don't get it. The cursing of the fig tree explains Jesus' action in the temple and exposes Israel for who they are at that time. And so when he did this and he quoted uh, the scriptures to them, the prophecy there, they made it a robber's den. Naturally, the verse 18, the chief priests are outraged. And the scribes heard this. I mean, he's literally assaulted them and the people that work for them. And he's turned over their money and disrupted their business. So they began to, to, to seeking how and plotting to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. So at that point in time, on that Monday, he was still very popular, the crowd was still with him, and they didn't dare try to go in and grab him at that point. And whenever evening came, they would go out, Jesus would go back and his people would go back out of the city to Bethany. All right? So, uh, again, just to remind you, uh, why were the religious leaders, why, what were those money changers doing up there? Uh, why was Jesus so outraged? What was going on? Well, again, going back to Josephus, that great Jewish historian of the first century, he said, on the Passover, every family had to sacrifice an unblemished lamb. And he said that uh, at, during the first century, at least 250,000 sheep were slaughtered up on the temple. 
250,000. Well, try to get your mind off all the carnage and realize that the priests were selling all 250,000 of those sheep. Not to mention all the doves and pigeons and all this other stuff. The, I mean, it was a monopoly like there's never been. They made millions and millions of dollars on one week, in one week uh, at Passover, right? And they also made money on the money changing as well. Uh, and so uh, Josephus says, just to tell you how much money they were making, when Rome came and invaded and knocked down the walls, they found uh, a depository that all the priesthood and all the religious leaders used. And they found they took so much gold out of there that the price of gold halved in the Roman Empire. Think about how much that, that would be. The supply increased so greatly that the price of gold plummeted. I mean, they had a monopoly. They were making unbelievable amounts of money. And you know how people love money. And Jesus was a threat to all that. So you can be assured they're plotting how to kill him. So what we're going to see now is they're going to come to him. We're going to skip over a little bit. As they come back in on Tuesday, they see for sure the tree did wither just like Jesus cursed it to do. Uh, and they asked him what this meant, and they said, you need to have faith, trust me on this. Uh, and then he goes on into the temple area in Jerusalem, and the chief priests, in verse 27, the chief priests, the scribes, and elders came to him. What's the obvious question? What right have you got to, to turn our tables over? What right have you got to say the things that you said against us? We are providing a service. How in the world are all these families going to have lambs to sacrifice if not for this great service we're offering? And who's going to change their money? If you know? So they're asking him, what authority? Who do you think you are doing this? That's the question. So Jesus asked them a loaded question about John the Baptist. By what authority did he do what he did? And they don't want to answer that because they know John the Baptist was a popular guy and the crowd's listening. Then in chapter 12, he answers their question with a parable. And this is the parable of the vineyard. And the parable, uh, Israel is the vineyard. And I'll give you the details of it real quick. Uh, the vineyard is owned by a landlord, a master, who represents God, of course. And the landlord says... I'm going to give this to these tenant farmers and I'm going to let them keep a lot of the money they make and all they have to do is pay me what's due to me, the landlord says. And so uh, after a year, and this is the great land, it's fertile, they, it ought to be making a lot of money, he goes back and sends his servants to collect the money. And they decline and they beat up his servants. And, of course, the servants in this parable equal the prophets. And you look in the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. God sent the prophets to speak to the people, and what did they do? They beat them up. 
and sent them away, right? So the landlord is a patient man. And so then he sends more servants and they did it again. And he's a patient man and he says, I know I'll send my own son. Surely they won't reject him. And when they saw his own son, they said, this is our chance to take over. He owns this. If we bump him off, we'll own this land. It'll be ours, right? The greed and the pride of it. And they killed the son. And then Jesus asked the religious leaders, what do you think the landlord ought to do? And, of course, it's a loaded question. And they walk right into the trap and convict themselves. They ought to, the landlord ought to throw those bums out of there and give it to somebody else. And then Jesus says, exactly, and he turns on them and he makes, them, makes it well known that this parable is about them. And they have tortured and killed the prophets and they are getting ready to kill. They're conspiring and they're going to kill the Son of God. And so God is going to turn away from Israel and offer the kingdom to whoever believes. And that would, of course, become the church. And so Jesus quotes in verse 10, to, pr to back that up, he says, haven't you ever read the scripture? The stone, the foundation stone, which the builders rejected, Jesus, this became the chief cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so if the prophet was predicting that they would reject the foundation of the kingdom, which of course would be Jesus. And they got, did they understand what he was saying? Absolutely, verse 12. They were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the multitude, and they understood that he spoke the parable against them, so they left him and went away. So they said, okay, we couldn't grab him then, so we've got to figure out when we can get this guy. We've got to bump him off. He is a threat to everything that we're doing. And so they send a tag team over there. All the different groups says, we'll get him. We'll send our best debaters over there tomorrow when he comes to the temple. So Jesus comes back to the temple, and the Pharisees and the Herodians, who normally hated each other, because of Jesus, they come together, because he's a threat to both of them. So now they're friends, and they come, and they want to set a trap. And this is that famous question they think that is loaded. They say, oh, teacher. They act like they you know, have great respect for him. We know that you're truthful and defer to no one. So you must know the answer to this. You are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? So here's this great evil ruler putting these horrible, oppressive taxes on them that no Jew wants to pay. And yet if you don't pay it, the Romans will arrest you. So if Jesus says, oh yeah, pay the taxes, they think that his fellow countrymen will hate him, turn against him. But if he says, don't pay it, the Romans will arrest him. Jesus is in a trap. There's no way out. 
To get out of this trap would require the wisdom of God. Well, thank goodness. Look what he does. He, knowing their hypocrisy, knowing what they were up to, says, why are you testing me with this nonsense? Bring me a denarius, a coin, to look at. Now, on this Roman coin was an inscription and an image of Caesar. And the Jews hated that because that was like idolatry to put an idol on the coin. They would never have a coin like that. But they had to use Roman money. They were paid with Roman money. So they bring him a coin. He says, whose likeness and inscription is, is this? And he holds it up. That's the actual picture. Actual, actual coin right there. I actually uh, bought this coin when I was in Israel. I know it's the actual one because the guy at the gift shop said it was. So Jesus says, whose inscription and whose likeness is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he says, that's right. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. That blew their mind. Because what did he just say? He said, all the material things, give it to the material people. But the spiritual things give to God. And also give to God the things that are God's. Who do you know that was made in God's image? And all of you. God made man in his image. And what he's saying, you've got to give yourself to God. Commit yourself to God and believe in Him. Give this money, that, that's materialistic stuff, to materialistic people. Caesar. But give your heart and soul to the Lord God. Crushed them. They went away uh, mumbling. And then, in verse uh, 18, the Sadducees say, well, we'll get him with our deal. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did, but the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So they come in with a riddle. A woman gets married, her husband dies, marries again, husband dies, marries again. Anyway, seven times. And they say, oh, in this resurrection you talk about, who's her real husband? And Jesus says, you big dummy. Do you not know anything? Have you not read the scriptures? In heaven, we're like angels. We're spiritual beings in verse 25. So, I mean, there's no sex in heaven or any, that kind of relationship, right? So you still know everybody and love everybody as the individuals they are, but it's not in a sexual manner. And by the way, he says, you don't believe in the resurrection? Have you not read, when you read about Moses, what does God say? Who does God say that he is? He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is he saying? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. A thousand years afterward, they're alive. 
He's the God of the living, not the dead. So you are greatly mistaken. And then look forward to verse 35. They asked him another question. And this time Jesus says, hey, I'm tired of all these questions. Let me ask you a question. My turn. Okay. Jesus, verse 35, answers, answering began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes, your teachers, say that the Christ is the son of David? Okay, so he's related to David. He's going to be a descendant of David. But what did David himself say? So now he quotes David uh, in Psalm 110. David wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Uh, The Lord is a translation of Yahweh. Yahweh is that divine name of God. When Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God the Father said, I am that I am. Tell him I am sent me, sent you. So he's distinguishing two different lords. One is God the Father and one is Jesus, God the Son. So he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at the... at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. Which is exactly what happened in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Jesus ascended to heaven, it says, and sat at the right hand of God the Father and will be there, the throne of God, until the second coming. And he's waiting until that time when they're going to actually set up the kingdom of God. And so David predicted that. So here's Jesus' point. David himself calls him the Lord, meaning the Messiah, who sat at the right hand. And so in what sense is he his son? And the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that Jesus, the Messiah, is God in the flesh. They are both Lord and part of the Trinity, the Godhead, right? That's what he's saying. He's literally claiming deity by what David said. I fulfilled that prophecy, which you heretofore did not understand. I am God in the flesh. Let me conclude with this. It must have been, if you're like me and like the disciples, You're a little bit confused. And it had to be confusing to his disciples that a king would come to serve. A king? The Lord God came to serve? What sense does that make? There's nothing else like that in the world that I know. I don't know any presidents that, you know, they're all got servants who serve them. So it must have been confusing to his disciples that a king would come to serve or a conqueror would come to be killed or that the Son of God would offer himself to be humiliated, spit on, falsely accused, whipped, and then killed as a criminal. That had to be confusing. That had to be confusing. What is going on? How do we understand that? I think Paul puts it really well in Romans 5, verse 8 through 11. I'll quote it real quick. Talking about what God did, God's plan to redeem mankind, 
He says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. He demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, he didn't wait for us to be good. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through his sacrifice. For if while we were enemies before, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved and glorified by his life. There it is. The plan of God to redeem mankind by sacrificing his own son for us. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these great stories, for showing us who Jesus is. And I thank you, Lord, that by receiving him as my Savior, my sins are forgiven. I've been reconciled to you, God. And I wait that glorious day when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. We praise you in his name. Amen.